Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Sharon Lever. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by VP and Principal Analyst Sucharita Kadali to discuss where the retail industry is and where it's going now that we're one year into the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Sucharita. Thanks so much, Jennifer. So before we get into where it's going, let's uh, discuss where it's been. Let's take a look at 2020 and and share, you know, the impact of the pandemic and what it forced retailers to do or not do. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a bit of a cycle. I think that when um, it was the beginning of the pandemic, um, which I would say pretty much was in the United States from March until May when we had the lockdowns, there was so much uncertainty. Stores were completely shut down. Retailers did not know the impact that it would have, um, both, of course, in the short term, but also in the long term. Um, consumers were also extremely um, uncertain about their own economic security and whether or not they would be jobless in a few months. Um, so I think that that really um, just created a lot of panic. Retailers, um, you know, kind of quickly pivoted to offering, um, you know, headphones and, um, you know, essential goods and basically anything and everything that they, um, where they thought that there would be consumer spending. Um, We also saw tremendous, um, leaning into omni-channel initiatives, curbside pickup. Um, I probably saw the fastest transformation ever in retail history happening in a few months' time because um, people quickly, quickly started to, you know, think about how do we get our inventory online and start shipping that stuff from stores if there are orders, and how do we make sure that people can still get orders um, through curbside pickup because we obviously can't have them in store. So there was, um, you know, kind of plummeting sales, but very, very rapid transformation. And I think then what happened was the huge sigh of relief that came out of the CARES package. And um, the CARES package, as well as a lot of retailers um, being able to, um, you know, get liquidity by drawing down um, lines of credit, billions and billions of dollars in lines of credit, um, really, I think, gave everyone reassurance that, you um, that things would be okay um, for the most part. And uh, and I think that is where we started to see a little bit of a rebound. So by the summertime, we saw um, sales rebounding. You saw a number of states actually releasing a lot of their restrictions, particularly in the South East, where, um, you know, that was a little bit of a harbinger of, you know, kind of things to, to come and, and you know, um, a retail recovery. Um, so by Q4, which is the most important season, um, uh, you know, kind of in, in the retail industry, things had not fully recovered, but, um, you know, were, were substantially better off. There were some sectors like the mall sector, apparel, um, the restaurant sector that were still challenged because there were a lot of restrictions around how many people could go into a physical store. Um, but by the December timeframe, you, you know, kind of were, I think that the entire 
industry was looking at, you know, the likelihood of vaccines coming around the corner, that even if there were variants they, of, the, of, the, of the virus, that it wouldn't be so debilitating. I would say in retail, it was, it was a pretty V-shaped recovery. Um, and we're still, you know, kind of recovering, particularly in some of the sectors that were most challenged, like apparel. Um, but, you know, kind of overall, I think one of the most um, remarkable things about the pandemic is that retail spend actually only declined in two months of the entire pandemic. Retail spend every other month was actually higher than the month before. And we actually saw, um, and we continue to see record high levels of consumer spend. It's in very different categories than it was pre-pandemic, a lot of essential goods, but, um, but retail spending has not, has not fallen off. And in terms of who fared well and who didn't, obviously, depending, it depends a bit on the sector, Sutrita, but, but also large retailers versus small retailers, did either of those have more of an um, upper hand, if you will, to be able to pivot faster? Well, Sharon, the one characteristic of the companies that did well were that they tended to be um, e-commerce centric and they had some kind of digital um, you know, presence. They were able to capture orders digitally, even in the restaurant sector, which was um, which did so terribly through the pandemic. The companies that did OK were the ones that were able to capture digital ordering. So even though, um, you know, I mean, their stores were or their, their venues were entirely closed, you didn't see, um, you, you know, kind of uh, 100% drop off or even 50% drop off in a lot of cases, you know, with digital ordering, many of them, um, you, you know, saw maybe a 20% or 30% drop off, which was actually helping them fare better than the industry, which um, in, in, you know, many of their competitors were doing even worse. Um, so anybody who had a digital presence um, definitely fared better. Um, so of course, any pure play, whether it was an Amazon or an Instacart did incredibly well during that period of time. But I think it's also important um, to recognize that there were a bunch of small companies that did really well. Um, in particular, there is um, an e-commerce um, you know, platform provider called Shopify. Um, there are others called Big Commerce um, you know, that have done incredibly well through the pandemic, supporting small merchants um, and allowing allowing them to, to sell digitally. And, um, you know, kind of one of the silver linings in the cloud of the pandemic was that even though Amazon grew, Amazon was so overwhelmed with demand early on that they actually shut off a lot of non-essential shipments. And that gave a little bit of oxygen for other companies that sell those products to actually step in and um, become the sellers of, of some of those non-essential goods, whether it was like yoga mats or um, you know, leggings or, you know, or whatever people were buying at that moment in time. So that kind of rapid change, the, the, the shift to digital, to your point, even in really, really tough times, it feels to me like that great story, that pace probably can't hold up forever. So what is, what does the transition look like? You know, as we start to look ahead versus the past, does that pace of change continue or, or you know, what does the rest of 2021 look like for retailers? 
Well, I think that what has been most enlightening about the pandemic is that it shows that the pace of change actually is possible if teams are committed to it and you don't have departments of no, um, you know, kind of perpetually shooting down ideas or forcing, you know, kind of different, um, you know, business plans or, you know, kind of, um, you know, other impediments in, in the way. Um, I think that what we have seen categorically happen is that there are more sales now happening digitally, more touch points that are digital, and um, it's probably not going to revert back to you know pre-pandemic levels. It'll stay high. And what we're seeing a lot of companies thinking about are: um, do we re? We, they may not necessarily have budget to hire new people, but it's reallocating, reskilling existing. Um, talent to be more digitally savvy. So what does that mean is that that could mean, um, you know, investing in, um, you know, digital courses or, um, you know, kind of having some digital team members take other team members on as mentors and, um, you you know, kind of... um, you know, kind of creating um, knowledge transfer so that, um, you know, kind of everybody in an organization is um, skilled on technology platforms that they may need to engage with, that they are versed in, um, you know, techs, you know, technology taxonomy, um, that they are able to, you know, that marketing teams, um, you know, are all skilled with Google search or with email marketing, um, you know, or if, you have creatives that, you know, kind of they can they can design, um, you know, for the web, not just for, you, you know, kind of print. And, you know, so, so things that, um, you know, kind of recognizing that there is a switch, that you have talent that is there, and your choices are to reskill that talent or um, really to look to whether or not, you know, kind of if they're unable to be reskilled, um, you know, kind of do you need to replace some of that talent? Now, I mean, you know, kind of so that that's really the level of discussion that that we're seeing companies, um, you know, kind of uh, think about now. Which to your point, they're they're still under budget crunch, right? So I would think, you know, that's kind of difficult. If you start looking at externally for talent, now you're competing with, digital natives and other company and everybody else looking for digital talent. So that, that the reskilling piece of this feels like a real opportunity, but I would assume requires some significant uh, commitment within these retailers. Yeah, I mean, internal commitment, you know, kind of from the individuals themselves, you know, who have to, you know, commit to perhaps spending extra time in evenings and maybe weekends, you know, learning new skills and, um, you know, executives and other people also, um, you know, kind of giving a little bit of leeway for for that transition, um, you, you know, as as well. So, so absolutely. I mean, um, it's and it, it's not it's not easy. I mean, you know, kind of there's some things that I mean, you can't just you know make somebody a developer overnight. You know, that's not that's not something that you know kind of can can easily happen. Um, but uh, but you, you know, kind of where where possible, um, you know, picking and choosing, um, you know, elements of change or outsourcing or, you know, kind of giving people resources and tools to um, work with partners or, um, you know, kind of uh, do do things in a in a different way than what they had done before, really, you know, kind of the kinds of things that we're talking about. Is there also a renewed commitment to better understand 
customers and consumer behavior here as well because there was such a stark or abrupt shift. But are you also seeing sort of renewed fervor around understanding consumers, consumer behavior and data associated with customers too? There is um, anytime, you know, kind of you have digital data, you know, kind of people get so excited about this, you know, kind of fountain of new information that they'd, they'd never seen before. So, um, you know, there's, there is absolutely excitement around, um, you know, kind of uh, being able to get, get more access to getting closer to the customer, seeing more of, you know, kind of their shopping journey or, um, you know, seeing more, um, you know, insights into what they may be browsing or post-transaction, um, information. But, um, what I will also say is that what data does is that it tells you the what, but it doesn't tell you the why. And um, that is still something that I think a lot of companies um, struggle with is is understanding the true whys of um you know, kind of how a consumer makes a decision, what are the factors, and um, one of the huge gaps in data that we continue to see is that a lot of um, the information that retailers get from their from their um, retail data points is that they don't see the consumer experience before. Um, so they don't see where else a consumer may be browsing. They may not be seeing the full scope of the shopper's consideration set. And, um, you know, those are huge, huge reasons that drive the why. Um, you know, so what we end up with, um, honestly, Jen, is um, a lot of, um, you know, kind of misinformation even in retail. Like that's probably a theme of 2020 is misinformation, right? And, uh, you, you know, kind of, um, you, you know, kind of not knowing, you know, not knowing what you don't know. And um, and I think that, um, you know, we see that in retail all the time is that everybody thinks that, you know, kind of, um, you know, people buy on Amazon because of um, fast shipping and you get your things, you know, in two days. All of Forrester's consumer data says that that's like the on like that's like the fifth reason down. You know, I mean, people like Amazon because of the cheap prices. They you know go to Amazon for ratings and reviews. They like the vast assortment. It has a pretty decent search engine that serves your purpose when Google cannot. You know, and and yet you know kind of retailers keep investing in things like fast shipping, and it's it's like nobody wants fast shipping like you know i mean well people like fast shipping because it's free from amazon but it's not something that anybody is willing to pay for you know the environment can't sustain it it you know kind of even you know kind of the the big carriers don't want fast i mean it's like it's not it's not a sustainable endeavor so you know kind of if all you do is you look at you know kind of data and you look at you know kind of how fast amazon is growing and you look at your window and you see an amazon truck in your neighborhood every day, you know, kind of the mistaken outcome of that data that you have, the data points that you have is that, oh, we need fast shipping too. But in fact, you know, kind of what retailers miss is that what drives transactions on your site is often your unique assortment. It's often, you know, kind of what you've done to uniquely build your customer base over the years. And that's what you need to continue doing. It is, um, 
you know, kind of these other factors that often get get overlooked. And, um, you know, and that's where I think it's so, so important to dig into the why, to try to understand, you know, what you don't know, to leverage um, competitive insights, to leverage, you know, kind of larger trend data, um, and marry that with the data that you have. And also recognize that a lot of the data that you do have, you know, probably... 50% of it is not that useful, you know, like just because you have data doesn't mean that, you know, kind of everything needs to be acted on. And, um, and I think that's another myth that, you know, kind of, I think that we've fallen into, um, you know, is that, oh my God, we have all this data. Everything is equally valuable and useful and I can monetize it. And it's like, that's not true. How do they fill in those gaps? So, so like, how do they get the why? I mean, uh, it doesn't mean there's more qualitative analysis. Um, or I'm also thinking to your point of they don't know what happened before or after the experience. It feels like that might be a great opportunity for more par- ecosystem partnerships, right, to, to get some of that and be able to connect the dots. What are you seeing as sort of new best, best practice on that front to fill those gaps? Oh, there are um, so many, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of, of great, great, um, you know, kind of resources. Um, you know, even Forrester has done a ton of research on, you know, kind of market research techniques, you know, that are emerging. And, um, it, you know, kind of it, a lot of it is like competitive and trend insight. I mean, in retail, I mean, there are there are companies, there are companies like IRI and Nielsen that, that actually explicitly offer competitive information because they have um, basically POS integrations, point of sale integrations with lots of retailers and they have consortiums of data. Now, some of that data is more mature in certain sectors than others. Interestingly, in grocery, it's very, very mature. In other sectors, um, you know, kind of you have to go to other, you know, kind of other competitive engines. There are also some emerging companies. There are companies like, um, you know, edited or style sage which are very specific in fashion and um, you know they have they're they're looking at you know kind of what um, they're they're looking at different websites looking at you know kind of what seems to be selling out what are the trends that are being offered um, you know so so there are different resources some of which are um, quantitative and are looking explicitly at competitive information. Um, absolutely, as you just mentioned, Sharon, um, consumer insights, um, you know, gathering data from your own customers. One of the things that retailers have really um, been leaning into in the last, I would say, decade and, you know, say that they're going to keep leaning into in the next decade are loyalty programs. Um, Forrester's data says that one of the most sought after benefits of a loyalty program that very, very few companies offer is um, just giving feedback to the company. So, so like, you, you know, kind of people say one of the benefits I want is that you listen to me. That's it, you know, and it's like, how hard is that to, to actually, you know, I mean, it's like companies pay millions of dollars for focus groups. And here are these people like desperately raising their hands saying, I just want you to listen to me. And, and yet, you know, companies think that, you know, kind of they need to infer what shoppers want when here are shoppers saying, I will tell you what I want. Just, you know, give me the chance to, to say what it is. Um, 
you know, one of my favorite resources for understanding, you know, kind of the why is every company should have an email address that is, you know, kind of your CEO's first name at the company.com. Amazon has had that for years. It's at Jeff at Amazon.com. I guess it's going to be Andy at Amazon.com, you know, moving forward. Um, but that was, that's the last line of defense that a shopper or a consumer has when they're desperate. Like, you know, kind of their issues cannot be resolved. And these are, this is it. Like, you know, cause like I'm, you know, I've tried everything else. I'm just going to mail the CEO and see what happens. And, um, at Amazon, they actually have people like who read that. And, you know, some of those emails are, are so bad and so egregious and problems that so need to be fixed that actually forms a significant part of the continuous operating, you know, improvement of, of that company. And, um, you know, kind of, and, you know, kind of, it also gives, um, you know, the highest sea levels visibility into, you know, kind of huge problems that, that could be blind spots for them. And, um, you know, and I think that there's, there's so much value in, in that type of, of engagement. And, um, you know, I, so, so there are so many different ways, Sharon, to answer a very long-winded answer to your question of like the why. Um, but, but I, you know, kind of, I think that it's, it's everything from, you know, kind of reaching out to your best customers, looking at what competitors are doing, trying to get data from your competitors, you know, kind of really, really listening to consumer feedback that's inbound um, and taking all of that into account to, you know, kind of, um, you know, put out fires. Is that not happening or is it just not happening well? I don't know of very many companies that get into that level of, of depth on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, I think that there are brands, some packaged goods brands that have regimented um, focus groups and consumer data, but that's often, um, it may be about new product development. You know, it's not necessarily about, um, you, you know, kind of how are people um you know, kind of, uh, you know, what are their thoughts on our, of our, of, of us on a, on a day-to-day basis? Um, you know, I think some retailers will collect some insights post-transaction, um, but it's very, it's very spotty, um, and very little makes its way back to the C-suite as far as I can tell. Um, you, you know, I think that, you know, kind of the report card for most, C levels within retail is is their sales. It's not always, um, you know, kind of what consumers see on a day to day basis. And the the gaps that you have there are that you may not be seeing, you know, kind of the slight, um, you know, signs of decline or um, brand erosion that could be problems longer term. So Sucharita, we've we've talked a lot about the importance of digital for the future of retails in the past year, but definitely for the future as well. I would su- suspect that many retailers sort of feel like they can only do so much up against the big digital titans, if you will. What are, what are the blind spots? What is that the way they should be thinking about it or how can they compete? I mean, the continued importance of, of investing in digital, um, you know, that's that's definitely not going away and is going to be um, as, as important as ever. Um, I think, you know, I mean, it's a point that I've, I've been making for a long time, which is also, um, you know, for a lot of companies, I think there are big questions around 
channel strategy, whether, you know, how much do you focus on things like direct to consumer versus partnerships? Um, you know, kind of what does that mean for your data and your ability to retain um, customers long term? And um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of direct to consumer. I'm a big fan of, you know, kind of owning that customer relationship. It's not always, um, it hasn't always been easy to do, but companies need to figure out um, how they're going to do that moving forward. Um, you know, even in sectors like packaged goods, where it may not be, um, you, you know, kind of uh, the easiest thing and could require some pretty radical, um, you know, rethinking of distribution and partnerships and, you know, kind of um, pickup points and shipping and, and all of that stuff. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a big, um, you, you know, kind of fan of really, really thinking about things like that. Also, um, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's always, um, you know, kind of tricky to, you know, kind of have, have this discussion, but when we look at the success of big technology companies, um, the analogy that I use is that everybody has, you know, kind of bowed down to these companies as like kings, like they treat them as if, you know, kind of these companies are like Usain Bolt, you know, the, um, you know, the, the competitor that's bigger, stronger, faster. And, um, you know, kind of you just need to, you know, kind of work harder. And that's, that's all you can do. But I actually think that a lot of these big tech companies, and I think that this is becoming more of a, um, of a, uh, of an accepted, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of piece of conventional wisdom is that they're not, they're less Usain Bolt and they're more Lance Armstrong. And, um, you know, and what I mean by that is that they have taken advantage of, um, of, of unfair, um, you know, benefits that have, um, you know, kind of worked in, in their favor. Um, in some cases, um, you know, it is, is outright, you know, market manipulation, like thing, like antitrust violations. Um, in other cases, it's just taking advantage of things like lax laws and lax oversight. And, um, it is, it's time for companies that are competitive or have lost share to these large tech companies to, to really take stock of what it is um, that has led to the shift in market share and, um, and do things differently. You know, whether it is, um, you know, lobbying and advocating for change, whether it is, um, you, you know, kind of, uh, you know, talking to your congressional representatives and, um, you know, trying to level the playing field. I think that these are things that in the next decade, every company should have government relations teams that are as important as their marketing and PR teams. Because if you are not versed in what is happening at a legislative level that can affect your business, you are missing, you know, kind of major things that can shape um, the future of your company and, you know, kind of what's possible or not possible for you. And it's a completely new muscle because Nobody who goes to business school, um, you know, kind of has any understanding of how, you know, kind of legislation or um, government works. And and that is that's something that's got to absolutely change, because 
it is, um, you know, it has, you know, kind of when you look at the biggest lobbyists in D.C., it's the big tech companies. And, you know, kind of they've they've managed to get things written in their favor and, you know, kind of it's been in their favor and not in the favor of everyone else in their orbit. And um, and that's a problem. Thanks for joining us today, Sutrita. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer and Sharon. Thanks, Sutrita. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.